Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for all that you're doing within our church family. We thank you that we live uh, in a nation, in the part of the world where uh, we can come and worship you without any fear of uh, retribution or um, uh, hostility towards us. And so we don't take this privilege that we've been granted um, really in the minority of the history of Christianity. Uh, So, Lord, we don't take this lightly. We uh, thank you that we have this opportunity to gather, to study your word. Um, We thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you um, for how he lays out the story. And so, Lord, as we look at a a very well-known story today, we ask that you would guide us, you would help us to see it anew. We ask, um, Father, that you would help us to get a, a, a clear picture of who Christ is. Um, and we pray this in his good name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. <clears throat> On that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Father, we do thank you for the story. We ask that you would guide us now as we work our way through the text. And it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen. So the parallel accounts in this, this, uh, of this story are found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Um, if my memory is right, that's they, Matthew in that story sort of gives the account they're about to leave, and um, one of the disciples says, you know, my dad's going to die, can I go take care of some business? And he says, no, like, let the dead take care of their dead, and So there's a couple people that wanted to follow, and Jesus kind of sort of called them out on their unwillingness to to truly follow. And then we see the story in in Luke 8, verses 22 through 25. Uh, Mark has moved at a very quick clip um, through his account, and normally we pull from the other accounts to sort of get more insight but shockingly, in, in this story, Mark gives the most detail of all of the other accounts. Um, many have suggested that they think that that's because it's, it's believed that, um, that, that Mark got his story firsthand from Peter, and he's quickly trying to get the story out, which sort of explains the, uh, the abrupt ending. And th- there also seems to be an element of persecution a, a stream of persecution throughout the letter. Can you turn me down just a bit, Joshua? Can, like, I, I feel like I can't without... I, I'll just keep talking and he'll, I think we'll get there. Um, 
you know, I really want to be able to yell at you guys, and I don't want it to, like, you know, blow out the speakers. Um, and so, um, so here we have Mark's account with all of the details. I, this story is so well known. Like, I didn't even grow up in the church. I didn't go to Sunday school classes, and I know about Jesus calming the storm. And so often in Sunday school, the story sort of told uh, I think these are the points. There's a big storm. They get scared. They go to Jesus. Jesus calms the storm. You have storms in your life. Jesus can calm your storms. Let's go home now. Um, now, I'm not saying that's not, that's not in there, but I think there's so much more in this story. And I think that we miss sort of the intensity of the story, probably because we don't all have the, the, the near-drowning experiences that we should have to understand the story. Um, I've been thinking this week about my near-drowning experiences, and I, I don't know about you, but like, I have too many to count. <laughs> like I, and so really trying to scroll through my mind of the, the, the near-drowning incidences, and I realized on Friday at the baptism, the location there, a lot of my near-drowning experiences came because of my dad's... Uh, Loose parenting style, some would say irresponsible parenting style. There was a lot of freedom. But the baptism location, so my growing up, when I came to live with my dad starting in sixth grade, basically multiple times a week, my dad would drive me down at 5 a.m. with my surfboard in tow and 20 bucks in my pocket, and he dropped me off at what was the jack-in-a-box at the corner there at Mission Beach. And I would surf all day long at sixth grade, um, basically as often as I could talk him into driving me down. So it would be a couple times a week. I would just, I would just be down there, like d- d- nonstop, surfing till I got hungry. Then I'd be eating. I probably didn't have 20 bucks. Uh, like I've had very small, because I, I, I was eating two tacos for 99 cents. That was my break. <laughs> So I'm like, there's no way I'd had a 20, but I had enough to get some tacos, and then I keep surfing, and I, I was just, there, there was no, uh, hey, the surf's really big today. We probably should, like my dad was like, maybe we shouldn't drop a 12-year-old off all day long in the big surf. And so um, I, I found myself in very sketchy situations, and, and I, I, the the water aptitude that I had, I think, sort of blossomed during this window. Um, sort of towards seventh grade is when I had my like my first true ocean rescue. Um, I I was invited to a friend's house. It was birthday or something, and they that they lived in in Mission Beach, kind of on the bay side, and so all the kids, a bunch of seventh graders, went went uh, went went sur- swimming. But the surf was huge. I mean, we're talking 10 to 15 foot with like big rip currents. And I don't think I'd entered the water, but I, but I saw that a bunch of the kids went in and immediately were like sucked out to sea. And, you know, I didn't think or act. And I just immediately swam out and began like dragging, like I probably dragged 10 to 15 kids in. Um, I'm still friends with the girl on Facebook and her dad, I just, I'll never forget at seventh grade, this guy, this like weeping, saying that I saved his son's life. Um, so it's terrifying. So, so I've had a lot of these experiences. And, then, and 
quite honestly, you know, with Lee's baptism, I, I, I was paid, per, like literally paid professionally to drown kids. Or, or near, near drowning is better because it's more terrifying, but I've definitely resuscitated a, like a lot of people from drowning that, that I inflicted on them. And, and, uh, but it's for the sake of our nation's security, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> and I never actually lost anybody. Um, so so the, the, the point of this is as we get into this story, like the Jewish people, like when they saw water, it was a bad thing. It wasn't, they were never a seafaring people. When you read the prophecy, all of the dragons have come out of the sea. The sea was a place of death. This, this wasn't like, hey, let's go jet skiing on, on the Sea of Galilee. Now, we have fishermen in, in the story. Like We can count at least, I think it's seven within the 12 that were fishermen. Um, but not fishermen in the open water, fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. And, and so they have some experience, but the Jewish people in general were, were not a, a, a seafaring people. And so there's a lot in this story that... Um, that to those who lived the story, it, it struck like tear like you were going to die within their souls kind of thing. So this, this isn't like they went out and a gust of wind came up and it was like, oh, that was fun. This is, they thought they were going to perish. And so with that, let's just get into the story here. And so we read on that day when evening came. Now on that day, which day are we talking about? It's, it's sort of hard to, to piece together the day that... The, my best guess is probably back in chapter 3, verse 20, um, when we see them come into Capernaum, that they, that they may have entered. We, you know, it's not chronological order, but regardless of the day, this is at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, um, we just see that there was a lot of teaching. Certainly there was probably more than we see just in chapter 4. It said that he began with the parable of the soil, and then he gave, there's three other uh, parables that Mark records, and then it says he spoke with many other parables. So it seems like he had a full day of teaching. Um, I think it's safe to assume that there was probably some healings that happened. There was some confrontation by uh, the religious leaders that just seems to be on par with Jesus's life. This seems to be a very exhausting day. And then there's the phrase, when evening came. So the first thing as we look at this story, we need to, in our imaginations, imagine darkness. So it's, uh, it's one thing to imagine a, a, a terrible storm with all the lights on. It's, it's another experience to be out in wa- water during a crisis situation with no lights. Um, darkness. There's not like flashlights. There's no, there's There's... And I have a lot of near-drowning experiences in total darkness, and that's, that's even way worse. Like, it's terrifying. Like, even if you're not having a near-drowning experience, like diving at night when you can't see and being out in the water, it's, it's not pleasant. Um, and, and so that's the, the setting. The setting. We, ha- we, have to, we have to keep this perspective. First, these guys weren't normally going out at night. 
And so it's like the end of the day, and Jesus is like, let's go to the other side. Oh, I've got ahead of myself. He said to them, continuing on, he said to them, let's go on to the other side. And and, uh, uh, let me show here a map. So the other side, this is one from one of those little, uh, you know, those cheesy, your visitor, but it's actually not cheesy. It's really good. Um, So this is the Sea of Galilee. Um... So if you were to go to Israel today, just to kind of put things into perspective, and hopefully you guys, if you're going to go on the next one. So this is down in Tiberias. This is a big city where we don't stay. Um, If you work your way up to the coast, so this is Mount Arbel. So when you're looking from the north-south, there's a huge, huge cliff face. And in between that cliff, there's a a path that it's like, they call it the Jesus path. It'll take you to Jerusalem today. And some people will hike it, take a week and hike it. You keep moving up and you get to Genesaur. So this is where, for those of you that have been, this is where we stay in, in Jerusalem. It's also the place, there's a boat there, because this is the, this is the location where they discovered the, the Jesus boat, um, which we'll talk about later. And then as you make your way up to the coast, you get up to Capernaum. So, so this is where they're located, where the story begins. And then when they cross over to the other side, so this is from north to south is 12, 12 miles. And then across the lake is you know, five or six, depending on where you are, are considering. Where this story happens, we know from where we pick up next week, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, um, we, we cut across here and we end up at Kersey, there's a cliff there. It's the only cliff. Pigs going off the cliff. Well, where was the location? Well, the one spot where there's a cliff. And so, so you know, I don't, you want to call it four miles, five miles? But th- this is the direction that they're heading. One thing I didn't say to you is basically from here down to somewhere down here, maybe a little bit around, th- this, th- this is the Galilee region. This is safe, good uh, Jeru- Jews were, it was their region. It was good to be a Jew there. It was, it was religious. It was, it, it's the Jewish territory. But then over here, this is a Decapolis. And so when you read in the, in the Gospels and you see the other side, I always get the, I don't know what it's from, but the spooky music, the da 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 da. So there's, it's a long day. It's now dark. Jesus says, hey, guys, let's load up and go to the other side. There, there. This is like, oh, you, you're a carpenter, Jesus. Like, you don't know about the water. You don't just, like, nighttime is not a good time to be out. And you want to go to the other side. That's the capitalist. That's Gentile territory. That's. No self-respecting Jew goes over there. And still to this day, it's a desolate area. I love it. I mean, I, the, for as little as the north has been built up, the other side is literally like there's nothing there. It's like no man's land. Um, I think it's hard for us to understand the, the tension they would feel in crossing. The, the closest thing that I can imagine is at the baptismal site in Israel that we use. It's down south where Jesus did his baptisms. And on the one side of the river, it's, it, it's depending on the flood stage, 
you're talking 20 to 30 yards to the other side. And so when you're standing on the bank of the Jordan in Israel, you look across and you see this, the nation of Jordan and all of their soldiers. And they're friendly, but they're not friendly. I, I would say that they have different standards of how they handle security. And, and so this last trip, drones are not allowed on the Israeli side. And on the Jordan side, they don't really care. And so all of these drones are up flying around, and all of a sudden you hear on the speakers, please put down the drones. You have 30 seconds, and we will put them down. And I don't know how they were going to handle it, but they like, saw these speakers. And, it's, and he's like, are we okay? Sure, we're okay here. I'm like, we're totally safe. We're fine. Now, if I started telling people, hey, guys, never done this before, but I have a great idea. Let's swim across. <laughs> it's only 20 yards. It's not, water's not moving that fast. Let's, let's go to the other side. N- now, obviously, when I lead a group over there, I'm not Jesus, so I don't have the same authority. And everybody would be like, no way, I'm, no way, I'm not doing that. But if we were back in Jesus' time, they'd say, hey, we're going to go over the other side. Say, yes, sir, I'll go over there. You know, like a, I'm uneasy about this. <laughs> like, you know, quote Star Wars, I got a bad feeling about this. That this, this is what they're feeling. So first it's nighttime, then he wants to go to the other side. And so we read in verse 36, leaving the crowd, he took along with them in the boat. He, he took along with them in the boat. It's not working in my mind. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. So uh, it makes you wonder, or makes me wonder, if this whole, okay, let's, let's go out at night. Remember, there's these huge crowds. They're pressing in. We read it twice in, in night, but between uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 with the crowds, they were so intense on Jesus that, that Mark records they couldn't even eat a meal. Like they, 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 they were kept from eating. And so may, like maybe Jesus is saying, let's... let's Go to the other side. Let's go at night because the crowds aren't going to follow us across the water. Um, they're not going to go to the other side because self-respecting Jews don't go to the Decapolis. And so they get into the boat. And so I referenced the Jesus boat. I, I, um, the problem is with the Jesus boat today is it's, it's, it's hard to get good pictures of it. So in the mid-'80s, Israel was in a state of, of drought that was um, really, it was the worst it had ever been. And so the Sea of Galilee had, had shrunk down to where it exposed a whole bunch of, of dirt. And I forget the story, but, you know, in, in Israel it seems like kids are playing with their shovels and next thing you know you hit something. It's like, well, they stop everything because there's actually so much stuff under the ground. And so they found this boat from Jesus' era. And in, in the location, literally, like I, like I showed you, this is Capernaum. They found the boat right in this area. It might, like I, don't take me exactly like where that pointer is, somewhere in that region, but, but close. And so archaeologists this summer, they, they start excavating around the boat. But what do you do to a boat that's been 
underwater for so many years, it hasn't been exposed to like the elements and that's super, I mean, it's dry rotted wood, you know? And so they had this team and you watch this video when you go to Israel, it's one of the stops that you go to and, and they excavate around it and then they started putting foam all around it to sort of encapsulate this thing in foam and they did the whole thing so where they could get it up and then move it out. And now it's in a museum that's at the, basically on the, the, the place where we stay. And so we can go to the next slide. This is not a picture, this is a drawing. And um, this kind of shows what the book, boat would look like. So you can, you can have an idea. We're, we're not talking about Carnival Cruise Line, where there's like swimming pools and slide, like all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a, this is about to replicate, I mean, this is with a picture that they have in there, the guys, this is the kind of boat we're talking about. You know, a set of oars, a sail, and you see that there's three guys in the boat right now. So just kind of imagine that there's 12 in Jesus, and he's, Jesus is in the back, the, the best place to be in a boat when you're going somewhere because it's the smoothest. And, and so... So they want to leave the crowd. Um, there's so many. There's so many details. So that they got in the boat, then he he notices or he records that there were other boats with them, which that's all we have. So I don't know if the like the other gospels don't give the account of the other boats. I don't know if there were some courageous people that tried to follow them a little bit, like. I, I don't know if the, uh, the, I don't sense that it means that the apostles kind of uh, were in a little flotilla going across. Like I think that there were one and there were other boats with them. And I don't know. Um, I kind of imagine like baseball at the San Francisco Stadium up there and, and you always see when the guys hit the home runs, there's all the boats out there. I kind of imagine when Jesus is talking, there's all the crowds, like the guys are like, hey, I got a boat, let's go and we'll, Get closer, um, but there's there's no I don't see the other boats on the other side or in the midst of the story, so I don't know. Uh, verse thirty seven, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Um, the, uh, I don't want to bore you guys with with uh, language stuff, but this. This gale of wind within the, there's there's a there's a uh, basically uh, the word mega you know like the mega jackpot or mega soda it's a word that we use for making stuff really big um, when we get to the calm there's the same beginning like it was a mega storm and a mega calm which is kind of cool and so Mark has these details this there's this fierce uh, gale of wind the, the waves picked up to where they're breaking over the boat. So much so that the boat was already filling up. So the boat is filling up with water. They can't stop it. It's not like when this is happening that you can like, you know, get the coffee can and start getting the water out. Um, the storms like this do occur in, in Israel. Basically every day they, in the afternoon, like from noon to six, they, they have what is kind of would be the equivalent to us in Santa Ana's that so you have moisture on the coast you have extremely hot desert in the east as it raises it sucks the cool air out like and whips the water across that doesn't seem to be what happens there's uh, 
There's some uniqueness. It's the, it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Like there's a Dead Sea that's much lower, but it's not a fresh lake. But this is the lowest freshwater uh, lake in the world. You have the, the Mediterranean Sea on the one side. You have the hot, hot desert on the other side. And if you go a little bit north, um, there's Mount Hermon, that there's basically snow on it year-round. And so I'm not a meteorologist, and I'm not going to try to act like I'm one. But because of all of these elements, still to this day, the Sea of Galilee, in the weirdest ways, will have these storms where like, the cold air from the mountain will rush down, you have the heat air and the moisture, and it, like, pun in, no pun intended, like it's the perfect storm. It's like it all comes together where it's absolutely horrific. And, and Guy, the tour guide that we use over there, I'm like, have you ever experienced this? And he's like, I've been on, I was on a group with a really famous like, big guy with like 100 people in the boat, and this happened to us, and it was terrifying. And, and so... The, the reality is, is no, no, no critics as this doesn't happen in the Sea of Galilee. Like it, the Sea of Galilee is, is known for these crazy phenomenons. Like this isn't like a fish story, like that they caught a bunch of fish. This is, this is uh, well, that actually did happen. I was, I, was trying, I was trying not to make fun of Jim Reeser who like fishes and to say this isn't like a fish story. Like I caught a fish that was this big and it's, you know, you... Uh, <laughs> and, and so these crazy storms do kick up. So, it's, so now, the guys who were probably apprehensive about crossing the lake because it was nighttime, they were probably apprehensive going to the other side. Now, this storm has kicked up. And it's not just any storm. It's, the waves are breaking over the boat. Um. This is scary. At night, this isn't like that there were cities where there's electricity on. You're in the middle of the black abyss, is which they thought the Sea of Galilee, that's what all water was, the abyss. Like down underneath, that's where hell was. And so now they're out in the total pitch black darkness. They can't see anything. The storm kicks up. All they feel is water coming over. They have weird... uh, Looking at people at dark when this is sort of happening, you can't quite make out who is who. And so we need to remember the fear. I, um, I want to go back a little bit because I got some neat headings I forgot to share with you. So verses 35 through 36, this is the calm before the storm. And then... Now we have the storm. Versus the, the first part of verse 38, we're going to see the calm in the midst of the storm. Then we're going to see the storm in the midst of the storm. Then we're going to see the peace after the storm. And then we're going to see the storm after the peace. <laughs> it's really funny. You watch all the... the it's really... I, just, I thought it was... I, I'll move on. I don't even know where we are. Okay, the calm during the storm. That's what flagged my attention. Okay, verse 38. So Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. More details. So unlike Mark. This, he was in the stern. It's a nautical term for me, the rear. 
asleep on the cushion. Nobody else mentions the cushion. And, and, and there are so many that think this is Mark writing, like getting first eyewitness account from Peter, telling the story of Peter, who was a fisherman. Peter, who of all of them on water would be the most calm. And, and I imagine that the other guys, as they were watching Peter, was getting more freaked out. You know, back in the old day, and my dad was a pilot, so I grew up kind of in an airplane seat with my dad. And in a small airplane, you feel the movement a whole lot worse than you do in the, in the big, you know, the big jets. But now the, now the pilots are, you know, they're kind of locked behind their door. But in the old day, you'd hit all this turbulence. And I would kind of look up there and it's like, they seem okay, so that means I'm okay. <laughs> um, there was one night we were doing work in, a, in, in helicopters up at China Lake, and we, we, we took off from Camp Pendleton, and, and uh, we went over to China Lake, we did some stuff, and then we were flying back in the Hueys. This was the last time they allowed guys to fly in Hueys before they did the upgrades. And it got really, really dark in the, the helicopter on the way home. And I had fallen asleep, and I woke up just screaming. And so I was like, uh-oh, what's going on? And I look out the door, which was open on the side of the Huey, and all I see is fog. Like, I couldn't even see the, the skegs, like, where you land with the helicopter. It was so foggy. And I'm going, oh, that's not, this is, who's yelling? And I look up at the front. It's totally black in the front. And I see the two pilots just, what, what looked like screaming at each other. They were probably just communicating but they were screaming. It's like, this isn't good. And uh, they screamed at each other the whole way. And it was like, there was clearly terror within that helicopter. We landed, and the pilots are still yelling at how they're going to tell somebody something, and they're going to do something to change whatever. And it's like, we're like, I know we're just the platoon on board, and we are nothing in this, but what happened? They're like, when we were coming back, in zero visibility, we lost all electronics. We lost all internal communication. We lost all communication with the airport. We lost all everything. And so we had to do this blind, like both, liter- like we couldn't see with the fog. We thought we were dying. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what we sensed too. <laughs> like, I, uh... And I bring that story up because I imagine Peter was like, there's, there's you know, Levi the tax collector oh, this is normal, everything's fine. Peter doesn't seem fine. Like, this isn't, he's freaking out. We're probably going to die here. Maybe when Jesus said to go to the other side, he wasn't talking about the other side, he was talking about, you know, the other side. <laughs> and, and so we're worried. And they point out, there's Jesus just sleeping on the back. How does Jesus You get the best rest on a boat. Like, I love sleeping on boats. It's like, just rocks you like a baby. Jesus has been teaching all day. Teaching is exhausting. Like, I, I see the humanity of Jesus here. Um, as he sort of introduced in the story, we go from his humanity to his deity. And so he's sound asleep. He's like wiped out. Like, he's giving and giving and giving and giving. And now he gets a moment and he just falls asleep. I believe that this is the only place, I didn't write in my notes, so I'm just kind of pulling from my memory. 
But I believe that I read this is the only place in the whole of the New Testament where Jesus is recorded as sleeping. Um, And so here he is, he is out. And they woke him and said to him, I don't sense uh, that this was like a, excuse me, Jesus. Um, uh, Peter's up front and he's a little bit uncomfortable. And I hate to bother you while you're sleeping, but if, if it's convenient for you, not, you know, anytime you're ready, like you could go talk to him to calm him down. Like, is there, no, this is like their, they're screaming, help, like Jesus, wake up. And of course, I didn't write this one down again, but I feel like this term teacher isn't the usual term teacher. I, somewhere in this context, they refer to him sort of like as commander, like chief, like, um, you know, jefe. This is like we got a situation. And, and look what they say. Do you not care that we are perishing? This is a really dangerous question to start asking God. Do you not care? Like this is super, uh, I don't know, like there's, there's a whole lot. They start by rebuking Jesus. Do you not care that we're perishing? And, you know, it's easy to kind of move on, but how often do we rebuke Jesus and, and rebuke God? Do you not care that I'm suffering through this? How could you take these, you know, we, we bring up, Scott brings up the young man. He references Luke. These are situations of like, God, how could you? The question begins with the, the like just the wrong premise. Of, like God's sovereign. He's, he's in control of things. And often he does things that, that might not make sense to us in the time, but we don't always have the, the grand view of what he's doing. And so they wake up Jesus. And I, this, there's just times that I wish we had video of the Bible story of, like it would be awesome if this boat had like a GoPro cam up at the top pole. And it's like, like how did Jesus wake up? Did he wake up like you wake up when you're exhausted? Like, huh, what, where am I? Like, what's going on? Why are you guys freaking out? Um, but all we see is that they, they wake him in a panic, do not care. And so now we see the calm after the storm. He got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This is the mega calm. So, so Jesus, from his sleep, just says, wind, would you cut it out? Hush, I'm trying to sleep here. And there's a miracle of epic proportions that I think that we miss in this. Like, I, I, I know that when I read this, I, I think of him saying, hush, and the wind just stops. But it was more than that. Um, like, some of the best surf from surfing comes after the wind stops, but the water is still moving from the storm. Often on the East Coast, which has, never has surf, their best surf comes as the hurricane is approaching. The waves are able to go. 
then the storm hits, and then after the storm goes by, then the waves get good. It gets good before the storm is there, and then after it's gone because the water keeps churning. You, you, I mean, imagine a swimming pool. You have a bunch of kids do a bunch of cannonballs, and they get out. That water's going to be rippling for a long time. And so what happened in this moment, Jesus says, hush, be still. The wind stops, and the water immediately stops. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't like he just, oh, the storm stopped. He said, hush, stop, and the wind stopped, and it was manageable now. It was, he said, hush, be still. Wind stops, water turns to glass. Gives me goosebumps. Like, I've never seen anything like that. Like, how do you make water stop? Even if you're trying to make water stop, it seems like the harder you try to make it stop, the more ripples you'd make. And so now as we go into verse 40, we have the storm in the midst after the calm. So now we have a bigger problem on our hands if you're one of the disciples. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Why do you still have no faith? And so I've been examining this question, and I don't, like, I don't have an answer to my own question. What, what is he asking them? Why are you afraid? I think I've always took that question and applied it to, to the, the fear of being in the boat. But when I look at how the story ends... These guys are terrified because of the man who's in the boat. And I don't know that it's an either or. Like, they're terrified by the storm, but when you, like, you're in a situation where you're afraid of your life, you wake up the guy who clearly they're led that, like, I don't know what they were expecting from him. I don't know that, like, we don't expect miracle. Like, I mean, we... We expect miracles, but we don't. We won't, don't see them like during this very like this unique period of time when Jesus came on scene and he's doing things to authenticate who he was, that he was the Messiah. And so they see him hush, be still, and it goes to absolute serenity on every level. And I, I think they were afraid of both. I think Jesus is probably asking them both. Do you still have no faith? There seems to be this mutual exclusivity between fear and faith. On Thursday night, we had a meeting um, with a handful of people. We're, we're in the process of starting a Celebrate Recovery. There'll be more of it in a couple weeks in the bulletin, but in, in September, we're starting a Celebrate Recovery at our church, which I think is a huge need in our church and in our community. And... and um, one of the people there, without even knowing what I was studying for, it was beautiful. It was like, I'm like thinking about this, and, and the, 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 the conversation of fear came up. Fear of whatever, fear of what people think about you, fear of how your kid's going to turn out, fear of your grandkids and what you fill in the blank, fear of like your next rent payment, your next mortgage payment. Your, like we're, like, we're great at coming up with, I don't need to fill in the blanks for you guys, but it, we all have things that we're fearful of. And 
And clearly, in that moment of fear, you're not, you're not demonstrating faith. I'm like arguing with myself. I can see, like, th- there is that uncanny thing when you've been walking with the Lord and you have something that should and has traditionally caused you to panic. I have the spiritual gift of worry. And, and so there have been moments in my life when I experience something and because I'm so gifted in worry that I see a situation and I go, I should really be worrying about this. But I actually am not. And it's a weird sensation. Um, so Jesus is challenging them. Like, do you still not have faith? Like, have you been walking with me this long that you don't trust me? And this is a huge lesson, I think, for us to learn to, to trust Christ in the midst of the storms. Um, the early church viewed this. They would draw pictures and, and, and what the symbols, like we all know the little fish on the ground, you know, the, I think the ichthys or whatever word that they would kind of draw it to just covertly identify themselves as Christians. Um, the, the early church kind of further supporting like the that that this that Mark carries sort of this these undercurrents of persecution on the church. Apparently the early church took this image and they understood the the storm at sea as their being in the boat with Jesus and the storm reflective of the world that was persecuting and executing them. It, it's so far from our radar as as, as Americans where most of the world, it's, it's just normal. You know, I, I referenced a book a few weeks ago, I think, um, that I've slowly been working through. You, know, you read slow, you take it in better. That's my, what I tell myself. Um, but the insanity of God about this guy that went around to the persecuted parts of the world. He first started his ministry in Mogadishu like during the war. And as he went out... Um, when he was talking to a guy in, in Russia and he's hearing all of the stories and after hearing all the stories, he's like, why do you guys not write a book about this? And they're like, what are you talking about? Why would you write a book about this? This is just normal day life. Everybody's aware of this. This is just Christianity. And I think that's been like, we are the outsiders. We as American Christians are in the super minority and that we really don't know persecution. And at any slight rocking of the boat that might be persecution, we start crying foul and, you know, getting all patriotic and our rights and, and just want to get out of it as fast as possible. We haven't experienced, like, executions in our family, being cut off from culture and society. Like, bless you. Um, and so the early church took this like as a as a picture of like the world hates us and the world is going to persecute us, and so we need to cling to Jesus in the boat because He is sovereign, He is Lord, He's the one that's over all things. And in verse forty-one, 
we read that they became very much afraid. And I don't, look, I wonder if that's Omega there, but I, uh, it's, <laughs> I'll use it in the English. They were mega afraid. <clears throat> I wish I thought about that beforehand. And they said to one another, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. See, they get it. They, it was the wind stopped and the sea stopped. And he spoke the word and it happened immediately, instantaneously. And their fear after the calm is the very beginning place of Christianity. Encountering this holy, awesome God. Every encounter in the Bible, when you encounter deity, when you encounter God, the response is you fall on your face, turning away, woe is me, for I am a a sinful and wicked man. We see it at Peter's encounter that when he first, like his call into the minute, we see that when he casts his net, they brought all the fish. He said, get away, depart. Like, I have no business being near you. Their understanding, their their fear is, is pointed to this man that is more than a man in their boat. That this is God in their midst. I think of John chapter 20, you know, after the resurrection, they're all hiding in the room. Jesus' first appearance, they have the fearful reaction. And what does Jesus say? He says, shalom, peace be with you. Come here, guys, come fill my hands. It's okay. So I think that's the second step. Like we, we encounter this holy God. Our response should be fear. Our response should have clarity about our sin and how vile it is and how it separates us from God and what I deserve is absolute destruction and consequence. And then we encounter Jesus. We hear the claims and Jesus says, peace be with you. Check it out. I went to the cross for you. As the nails will be driven into my wrists and into my ankles and that the wrath of God was poured out on me, I did it all for you. I did it that there could be peace between us. All you have to do is respond in belief. And then two verses later, he appears, I can't remember if it's again. I think it might be again he came back or if, if it, just it should be reading it, but two verses later. I think it's the same situation. He, he says, Again, shalom be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so in this very first like post-resurrection story, what we see is they now have peace with Jesus. Then he says, okay, you have peace with me, but I'm putting you on mission, and I, I'm commanding you to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And it's this beautiful picture of the Christian life. You encounter God, you should have fear and trembling. Um, if you don't, and this is my fear of kids that grow up in the church, is that they become inoculated to the gospel. They, they begin to think of Jesus as like the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and, you know, a lucky rabbit's foot. There, there needs to be this 
this encounter with the holy God that stops you in your tracks. I don't care if you're five years old or you're 95 years old, that it stops you in your tracks, you fall on your face in terror. And then God says, it's okay. I died for you. I've provided a way that you can have peace with me. And now I'm sending you out to be a light for me. Which ties into like the, we're ending with communion. And so the, the first part of communion, the guys are going to come up here. Um, the guys can come up, whoever's passing out the elements. I don't. Um, the first part is confession. And so if you, communion is for, like, it's for Christians. It's for those that have given their life to Christ. Um, if you're visiting, feel free, if you're a Christian, to take communion with us. We're, it's not about church membership. It's not about that. You guys, and you guys can just hang out here for a second. Just to, um, so if you're not a Christian, if you're not confident in your relationship with the Lord, the, the, the offer is, is really simple. It, it's, it's probably more simple than we're comfortable with because we live in an economy where you do something for me, then I owe you to do something for you. What the gospel is, is that Jesus lived a perfect life. He went to the cross because of your sins, because of my sins, because of the world's sins. And the wrath of the Father was placed upon him, absorbing all sin. And his life was given on our behalf. He was buried for three days. He rose from the grave. Then later he ascended into heaven. And so the gospel is that this opportunity was presented to each one of us that Christ bridged that gap that we have with God. And your response is to believe. Your default is to reject. Becoming a Christian is as simple as belief. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about raising your hand. It's not about praying. Like, I don't even see you praying a prayer. Like, it's in that moment in your heart when the truth of the gospel clicks and you have that, Oh my, I believe. In that moment, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. I think walking the aisle, I think that's baptism like what Lee did on Friday. That's that public, I'm going forward, I'm identifying with Christ. And so when we come to take communion, it's a reminder of the cross, it's this picture. And so if you're not a Christian, nobody's judging you. Like, like just, it's, if you're not a Christian, it's not for you. If you're a Christian, it's for you. Because you remember, it's a reminder of what Christ did for you. And all Christians sin and struggle and fall short and our faith trips, we get our faith, our lack of faith trips us up. And so communion is this time which we see, it's the, the first element is confession, restoring um, your relationship with God. And so the guys are going to go out. They're going to pass out the elements, but during this time, just kind of close your head. Close your head. (laughs) Bow your head. Close your eyes. Be aware of the elements going around because I don't want you guys to do this by faith, blindfolded. Um, But but really just ask God to show you sin in your life. If you're not a believer and you want to be, just call out to him and say, I believe. And then hold on to the elements and we'll continue uh, communion after that. So you guys can go.
Father, as we confess our sin to you, I thank you, Lord, um, that your word tells us that you're faithful to cleanse us and to restore us into relationship with you. We thank you that our uh, salvation is based on your work, not our own. We thank you for your mercy, your gentleness, your graciousness towards us as we um, navigate this life as saved sinners. And so, Father, we desire um, that you have more and more control of our lives. We ask that you would help us to be better listeners to the spirit that guides us, that convicts us of sin. Uh, May we yield our lives to you more and more. Amen. Now in Mark 14, 22, kind of fast forwarding through the story, we read there that uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. So the the cracker in our hands is is really simple. It's, it's It's a reminder to us, I think in layman's terms, that you don't bring anything to the table. You bring nothing to the table with God. He did it all for you. The peace you have with him, anything that you have, it's because of what he did for you. He did it all. He didn't do 80%, and it's up to us to make up the 20%. You bring nothing to the table. I bring nothing to the table. And so we have this cracker to remind us to take us back to the cross where he bore it all for us. Then we have the juice. And he continues in Mark 14, verse 23. Then he, he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And so the, the juice or the wine that, that's symbolic of, um, the book of Hebrews is this wonderful epistle that, that, that speaks of the new covenant or ends with the new covenant and um, what I think about this is that it's a reminder of the covenant that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. It was once and for all. It, it wasn't like the sacrifices of the Old Testament that as immediately as you made the sacrifice, you were immediately dirty and you had to start the process over again. In Hebrews 9.14, we, we read there that he says that his blood cleanses us from, uh, cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we might serve him, that it, that it was a cleaning unlike any other, um, that we're pure before him, we're secure in him. You don't have to believe the lies of saying that, that remind you of all of your wrongs that you've committed your whole life. The scriptures tell us that his death on the cross was sufficient. You're secure in the new covenant if you have placed your faith in Christ hands and then he ends and he says truly i will truly i tell tell you i will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god when they'd sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives and so in this last phrase i i'm reminded that jesus isn't done yet we're still looking forward in hope to this new kingdom this this new heavens and earth that he's going to bring about in his own time, in his own way. He's in control. Just like he was in this boat, he's still in control. He's sovereign over all things. 
and we can trust him, we can have peace in the midst of the storm, whatever you're going through, and we're not to have fear, but we're to have faith in him. And so, Father, we again, we thank you for your word reminding us of your authority, your sovereignty, your ability to cleanse us and to hold us and to secure us in your hands. Father, as we take communion, we ask that you would help us uh, to be renewed in our relationship with you, that we would be renewed in our assurance of our relationship with you. Father, we ask that you would um, convict us, Lord, to, to go as the Father sent you. Um, in Corinthians, we're told that as often as we take this, we're to, um, to proclaim Christ, the cross of Christ to an unbelieving world. And so we ask that as we take communion today, that you would bring family members, neighbors, coworkers, people that we encounter day by day, um, Lord, that you would help us to be burdened for them as you are. And Lord, if an opportunity presents itself, or if you've been presenting an opportunity for us, Lord, help us um, to share our faith, to be a light for you. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.